Koitearapuru Sounds Engareo engamana rauranga tēnā koutou katoa. This is the Magpie House produced for Sounds Centre for New Zealand Music Koitearapuru. Ko Kirsten Johnstone aho. Episode 1 Landfall in Unknown Seas. Behind New Zealand's Parliament buildings sits one of the country's oldest suburbs. Thorndon, or Pipitea, is home to Premier House, the Botanic Gardens, artist Rita Angus's cottage, and writer Catherine Mansfield's birthplace. Lots of the little houses here date back to the 1860s, when Pākehā settlers were coming in by the boatload. Now, you can't buy property here for under a couple of million. Its main drag is the bustling Tenakori Road, where there's cafes, a music instrument repair shop, a florist, vintage fashion and beauticians. If you weren't looking for it, you could miss the quaint little lane that sits between the Shepherd's Arms pub and Tenakori Antiques. It used to be called Ascot Terrace, now it's Ascot Street. It's a small slope up and at the top we pass a courtyard lined with well-worn bricks shaded by an old Pohutakawa tree. It's just a few steps down the hill again to our destination. 22. 22. This is us. Yes. Number 22 is a black weatherboard modernist house with stark white framing around the windows. It's a pretty unassuming house. You could easily walk right past it. But it contains many stories. Uh, The weatherboards are creosoted and the windows and doors are painted gloss white enamel. This is Chris Cochran. So I helped to maintain the house in good shape, uh, warm and dry and weatherproof. Chris is a conservation architect and he knows this area well. He's lived in the street just down the road in another heritage-listed house, the Wedge, for over 40 years. This house at 22 Ascot Street is Category 1 on the Historic Places list and looked after by Chris because... For more than 40 years, it was home to New Zealand's father of classical music composition, Douglas Lilburn. It was built in 1951 for uh, Richard Collins and his family, and he employed a Jewish emigre to design the house. Yes, 1951. I don't think I ever met Barbara Collins, but when I first became interested in the history of the house... I, I did ring her. One thing she told me was the, the name of the house. She said, we call it the Magpie House. And, well, the reason is, is very obvious. It's a black and white house. This is the Magpie House. Episode 1, Landfall and Unknown Seas. Brought to you by Sounds Centre for New Zealand Music, Toitiara Puru. We're starting this story with an overture. I met him a couple of times and was shouted some of his Blenheimer medium cast wine, uh, probably uh, half a cask from memory. This is Lilburn's biographer, Philip Norman, who's a composer himself. While Norman was writing his thesis in the late 80s, he spent hours with Lilburn. I don't quite know who was interviewing who by the end of uh, that session. Douglas Lilburn was a country boy, the youngest of seven, and he grew up in the Turukina Valley at his beloved Drysdale Station. It was an idyllic life for little Douglas, the hills and the waterfalls, swing bridges and fruit trees. 
But when he was 10, his parents retired to town, taking Douglas with them and leaving the farm in the care of their eldest son. Douglas went to the pioneering Quaker school in Whanganui, where he later said the teaching was enlightened and imaginative. But after that, he was sent to a boarding school called Waitaki Boys High in the South Island. And the transition was a bit of a shock. Discipline was strict, and all the boys were cramped into one big room, which was open to the elements and freezing cold in winter. Lilburn was a shy and sensitive kid. He managed to get himself excused from rugby due to his wearing glasses and opted instead for playing the organ and joining the debate team. At Canterbury University, he studied journalism, which his parents saw as a sensible choice. But he also took music papers. Although composition wasn't being encouraged in the conservative music department there, Douglas couldn't help himself. And it worked out well for him. In 1936, Douglas entered a composition competition judged by Australian composer Percy Granger, and he won it. It was enough to convince the Lilburn family to let Douglas go to the Royal College of Music in London. In 1937, he left New Zealand to study with English composer Rafe Vaughan Williams. He went there partially because one of his admired composers of the previous generation uh, taught then, that was Rafe Vaughan Williams, but also partly because in those days New Zealanders, if they went overseas to study music, they basically went to London. The late 1930s was an interesting time to go to Europe. In 1933, Hitler had been elected Chancellor of Germany, and while war wouldn't be declared until 1939, the years preceding that saw a lot of people fleeing Germany and Austria. Some people by then could see the writing on the wall and they wanted to leave. This is Anne Beaglehole. She's a historian and author of A Small Price to Pay about the lives of Jewish refugees in New Zealand. She herself came as a refugee from Hungary in the 1950s. Things got more and more desperate as life for Jews became more and more impossible. Their businesses were taken over, they lost their jobs, so they couldn't make a living. So I've been calling them... Jewish, but they weren't, some of them were were Jewish by religion, others were Jewish only by Hitler's edict. For example, they might have had one grandfather on one side of the family who was Jewish, and that was Jewish enough for the Nazis. So New Zealand was one of the places um, that people thought about going to, very hard to get into. Like the rest of the world, New Zealand was trying to recover from the Great Depression. There was high unemployment and a housing shortage and the Labour government of the time in New Zealand wasn't encouraging immigrants. New Zealand has a long history of immigration policy that discriminated against what they called aliens and race aliens. So New Zealand wanted immigrants from from the year dot. It's a country of immigrants, isn't it? Mm. Except for Tangata Whenua. But the desirable immigrants were always people from Britain, people like us, people from the first group that originally came. They didn't want immigrants from Asia. Chinese were not wanted, even though there were already Chinese here who'd come in ages ago in the gold fields. And Jewish immigrants or refugees were were not wanted. Was that explicit in policy? Very explicit. And at all levels, people didn't feel they had to hide their views, which now we have a much more polite language of racism, usually, not always. It appears to be a matter of luck whether or not you got a New Zealand visa, rather than fulfilling any kind of skill shortage or criteria. Though, if you had money and contacts, 
didn't hurt your chances. Because you had to basically buy your way out because the the Nazis took everything you had. New Zealand wanted you to pay, so you had to buy your way out, buy your way in. There were no refugee settlement programmes like we have now. People arriving may have had a sponsor, but they'd largely be left to sort themselves out. Offers of employment weren't forthcoming, and getting housing wasn't easy either. And New Zealand cities seemed like cultural deserts to some of the new arrivals. Oh, there, you know, there was a joke, you know, um, some one, one refugee to another j- refugee, one says to the other, did you see the nightlife last night? And, and the other one replies, yes, I saw the possum climbing up the lamppost. That night there was no nightlife. While they might not have been impressed with the cultural scene here in New Zealand, they were, for the most part, grateful that they were safe, where many of their friends and family were not. New Zealand took only 1,100 of these refugees in the lead-up to the war between 1931 and 1940. It might not seem like much, but they would go on to make a huge impact on our cultural scene, so much so that the New Zealand Lilburn felt he had to leave in order to become a great composer would be quite different by the time he returned. Among those 1,100 were a couple of dozen architects, some of them hugely influential. Frederick Schwarzkopf, who went on to build the Magpie House, was one of them. There were poets, musicians, artists, actors, philosophers. Many would go on to play in the orchestras, write music and poetry, and help to build the institutions and societies that would support the growth of a classical music infrastructure. Es war ein One of the composers who came was Richard Fuchs, who arrived age 51 and who never quite found his niche. When I was 18 and my grandmother died, there was a huge raft of material in a back shed. This is his grandson, Danny Mulheron, who's an actor and filmmaker. All still wrapped in German newspapers from the 1930s, all fascist newspapers. Huge boxes of compositions. Although he never knew Rickard, Danny made a film about his experience in coming to New Zealand and about taking Rickard's music back to Germany. That would have been a huge culmination to have him played to a non-segregated audience in Germany after 80 years or whatever it was. It's just, uh, you know, I'm very proud of being a tiny part of that. It was awesome. Although Fuchs was a prolific composer, He made his living as an architect in his hometown of Karlsruhe, near the Black Forest. While they were secular Jewish, his family had been in Germany many generations and he'd fought in the German army during World War I. He'd even been one of their official war artists. He was totally betrayed and thought they were cruel and bastards. Yeah, which they were. Uh, Yeah, but they is a a misnomer because in a way it's incremental, it's neighbours, basically people pulling away from you. You know, people thought it wouldn't happen, and then it sort of did happen. By 1937, Jewish people weren't allowed to practice architecture in Germany, and Fuchs's music was banned too, unless it was performed by a Jewish orchestra for a Jewish audience. The Fuchs family, Rickard, his wife Dora, who Danny calls Muti, and their two daughters, Ava and Sonny, left it pretty late to flee Germany perhaps because Rickard, as the eldest son, needed to stay and look after his elderly mother. Rickard was actually imprisoned in Dachau, the concentration camp, after Kristallnacht. 
That was a night when 30,000 Jewish men were rounded up all over Germany. Rickard was in Dachau a few weeks before the visas for New Zealand came through. But they went through the kind of refugee line through Europe to um, Holland and, and then into England where he stayed for a while. With um, Rafe Williams, is that the composer? Vaughan, Rafe Vaughan Williams, yeah. And Rafe Vaughan Williams was very kind to him and rated him as a composer and thought he'd probably be the most experienced composer in New Zealand if he went there. And um, Ray Ford Williams raised money for him and, uh, to get overseas, get to New Zealand to have a new life. This would have been at the same time that Douglas Lilburn was studying in London with Vaughan Williams. Maybe Fuchs and Lilburn even met, but they may not have liked each other's music. While they both admired landscape and tried to portray it in their music, they were doing it in very different styles. Ironically, Fuchs's music was exactly the sort of style that Nazi officials were into. Richard Fuchs arrived here in 1939, six months before war was declared. I think they were incredibly grateful to be away from Europe, as far away as possible. Another couple who arrived as part of that 1100 were a couple named Paul and Dini Schramm, who were known in Europe as virtuosic duet pianists. This is Otago music lecturer Tom McGrath playing one of Paul Schramm's pieces. He's currently writing his PhD on Schramm. Yeah, so I've become quite obsessed with him and getting to know his music and just trying to, to get to understand him better so that I can do his music justice. Paul, spelt P-A-U-L, Schramm, was an Austrian who was living in Berlin when Hitler came to power in 1933 with his Dutch wife, Bernadina, known as Dini. They weren't Jewish, but... Paul's music would have been unacceptable to the, to the Nazi regime. He was actually blacklisted. That would have been because of the, the modern quality of his music and very much because of his interest in jazz. That's right. Nazis didn't like jazz. Well, it was partly a racist thing, but jazz had arrived in Europe after World War I and had become very popular also in Germany, in Berlin, in the time of the Weimar Republic in the 1920s in, in Berlin, a time of great artistic and social, political interest, a very interesting time in Berlin. So he wasn't a political refugee from Nazi Germany, but he would have been a, a cultural refugee. And he disagreed with those values and thought it was time to, to get out. Paul and Dini Schramm settled in Java in Indonesia first, known then as the Dutch East Indies, and even founded an orchestra there. But the heat and humidity got too much, maybe for them, or maybe for the two nine-foot grand Beckstein pianos. And in 1938, they came to Wellington. He was charming. 
he had that Viennese continental charm about him. And he was, of course, a brilliant musician, as had been a child prodigy. And he loved playing cards. Uh, he, apparently he smoked a cigarette a lot. In fact, one of his party tricks was playing difficult piano passages with a cigarette between his fingers. He wasn't just a jazz guy, though. He once played all 32 Beethoven sonatas back-to-back over three days, all from memory. So he and, and Dini uh, were a very glamorous couple when they arrived, and they gave two piano recitals fairly early on throughout the country. He went on a tour of schools. Uh, that, that's one of the first things he did. He wanted to bring music and, and his experience to a wider community than perhaps he'd been bringing it to in, in Europe. Paul was opening ears all over the country to music that had been composed recently. He played modern compositions. He was playing Prokofiev and, and Ravel in recitals. Ravel had only just died and Prokofiev was a friend of Denis. If New Zealand got to hear music written in the 20th century, it was very rarely, and usually, Elgar. Definitely progressive, very progressive for New Zealand. Paul wrote some music for the New Zealand Film Unit, providing a score for one of the 1939 New Zealand tourism documentaries, Māori Land Movie Logs. We'll come back to both the Shrams and the Fuchs, but there's another family who arrived in Wellington at the same time who have a great story, the Dronkers. I was always aware that they were not like other people's grandparents. One of their grandsons is Nick Bollinger, who you may know as New Zealand's nicest music critic. My grandmother was Jewish, and really, it, they got out at the last minute. They arrived in New Zealand in 1939, just a few months before the war broke out. My mother was three, and her brother was six. My grandmother had been an actress. As I only really realised later, she was actually a very famous actress. Um, in the 1920s, she was the leading lady in the theatre of Max Reinhardt, who was probably the most celebrated German theatre director at the time. And, you know, she played Juliet in his Romeo and Juliet. Her stage name was Minnie Corton. But when she married magistrate Adolf Dronker and fled to New Zealand, she was known as Maria Dronker. Her family had been, I mean, they were not Orthodox Jewish. They were secular intellectuals. She was the youngest, actually. She had these older brothers, one of whom was quite a famous psychotherapist. So their house in Berlin had been a real intellectual sort of hotbed, you know. That's extraordinary, you know, when you realise. They had sort of parties with Bertolt Brecht there and Einstein. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, that was the circle that she grew up in. Anyway, she landed in Wellington and... There was nothing. There was <laughs> cultural wasteland. It was a, well, <laughs> it must have been a huge adjustment, but I think partly because they managed to, you know, escape with their lives, which a lot of their friends and family didn't. They seemed to be sort of eternally positive about New Zealand and about what they found here. They certainly bonded with what there was of an arts community immediately, really. My grandfather, he wasn't really able to work here at all because under the war regulations, he was classed as an enemy alien. When war broke out, they became enemy aliens. This is historian Anne Beaglehole again. For this group of refugees, there was a big system set up to work out how much of a security risk they were because maybe, even though they had 
they were, had fled the Nazis, maybe they were really Nazi sympathisers, so could they be trusted? And various papers written about, no refugee can, can be trusted, we can't trust these people. And so they were put under surveillance. Some were interned on Soames Island. What was found out about these people that deemed them dangerous enough to hold on an island in the middle of the harbour? I think the people there, it seems to me, were just... They just didn't know how to play the game. They were misfits. They, they might have said unwise things in a loud voice and somebody... I don't think they really were Nazi supporters. They just didn't know how to answer the questions properly. So there was a classification A, B, C, D, and A. I think A was the most secure risk, so they were Soames Island. If you were B, you were less of a risk, and um, you were just under surveillance. So, for example, if you lived in Roseneath or in Haititai and had view of the sea, and you went out after dinner and lit a cigarette, then your neighbour might report you to the police that you were signalling about shipping movements in the harbour. Because, you know, there was a threat that the Japanese might come. And so refugees had to report once a week to the police. If they moved house, they had to report to the police. So all the German refugees were under surveillance. Some people were writing to the police. This is Tom McGrath on Paul Schramm. Thinking that he might be some sort of a spy. Or, or the idea that he might be communicating things to the Nazis through, through his broadcasted recitals. Though none of the families in this story ended up on Matu Soames Island, those classed as enemy aliens during the war weren't allowed to broadcast music on the NZBC, the state broadcaster, for fear they might be playing code through their notes. Paul Schramm and Richard Fuchs were both banned. Schramm wasn't even allowed to drive a taxi, so he worked in a factory. Fuchs turned to composing some patriotic New Zealand songs, a military band march, a New Zealand Christmas carol. While Maria Dronka was busy teaching drama, making famous friends and raising children, her husband also worked in a factory for a bit. But on the side... He did play in dance bands during the war a little bit around Wellington. This is Nick Bollinger again, talking about his grandfather, the German magistrate, who, as it happened, was a fairly good double bass player too. He'd never done anything like that. He'd never played without sheet music, without written music. But, you know, I think he could find his way around these fairly simple tunes and things that he was asked to play. The other thing was that his name by, on his birth certificate was Adolf, which... Wouldn't have <laughs> gone down well. <laughs> it was not a good name to have during the Second World War. And uh, these musicians, you know, when he first went along to his rehearsal with this dance band, First they laughed that he couldn't play music. Then the fact that his name was Adolf, they said, that, that won't do. Have you got any other names? He said, well, John is my... We'll call you John. <laughs> These three families, Fuchs, Schramm and Dronke, were fleeing persecution in Europe. But they didn't exactly arrive to a ticker tape parade in Wellington. I mean, they weren't detained on Soames Island like some Germans were. I mean, I think they were recognised as refugees as much as, 
you know, that wasn't taken entirely seriously, I don't think. I think there's been a certain amount of revisionism, you know, like post-war, you know, people have sort of reconsidered, you know, in, in, in the light of all of, you know, the revelations about the concentration camps and all the rest, people started to see God, you know. We rescued these people, bringing them to New Zealand. But at the time, it was sort of like, what are they doing here while our boys are off fighting the, the Germans and trying to protect the, this corner of the empire and all of that sort of thing? We are only a small and young nation, but we are one and all a band of brothers. And we march forward with a union of hearts and wills to a common destiny. It's September 1939, and war has just been declared against Germany. New Zealand Prime Minister Michael Joseph Savage breaks the news. None of us has any hatred of the German people. For the old culture of the Germans, their songs, their poetry and their music, we have nothing but admiration and affection. We believe that there are many millions of German people who want to live in peace and quietness as we do threatening no one and seeking to dominate no one. But we know, alas, that such a way of life is despised and rejected by the men who have seized and hold power in Germany. We know that those who have done and are doing incalculable harm to the true interests of their country and that they are wasting and destroying the intellectual, artistic, moral and spiritual resources that their people have built up throughout the centuries. Back in England, the composer who will go on to be New Zealand's greatest, Douglas Lilburn, is adamant that he will stay put. In fact, he offers himself up to fight. His eyesight, uh, I think, was what let him down, and uh, so he wasn't able to join up over there. He volunteered to be uh, sort of local fire warden uh, over in London, so he was keen to assist, uh, but was ineligible. One of Douglas's older brothers, Ewan, was able to fight. He became a pilot with the RAF, but then in early 1940, Ewan was killed when his plane went into a spin during a training flight, plummeting into the sea. The family were nervous about how the war would affect their finances. They'd been supporting Douglas in London, but in April 1940, they cut off the stipend. And the family uh, wanted him to come home uh, at that particular point to help on one of the many farms that the wider Lilburn family uh, owned. Uh, But it was exactly that time that there were composition competitions announced for the centenary of New Zealand, which was in 1940. The centenary, a celebration of 100 years since the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, Te Tiriti or Waitangi, New Zealand's founding document. There were centenary events happening back in New Zealand, but in London, a special concert was being planned, a celebration at Her Majesty's Theatre in front of the Duchess of Kent. It's hard to fathom that Lilburn chose to stay as long as he did in London, with war lapping at the borders. But he was determined to prove himself overseas before finding success at home, which is actually something that remains true for many musicians now. So Douglas spent 17 days writing an orchestral piece that he sent to Warwick Braithwaite, the expat New Zealand conductor of the Sadler's Wells Orchestra. Braithwaite was 
sufficiently impressed to take it on in that centenary concert. Less than three weeks later, on the 15th of April, Lilburn's composition Overture, Aotearoa, was premiered as part of a matinee programme that included haka, songs by Alfred Hill and poetry readings. Lilburn's Overture started off the proceedings and he was very concerned about the size of the orchestra. I think they only had a couple of first violins or something that were going on and he had to end up hiring a couple more violins just out of his own pocket. Uh, so I imagine the uh, the performance was quite far from how Lilburn had really hoped it would sound, but nonetheless it was a great achievement to be able to uh, have a, uh, an overture performed in the company of some of New Zealand's finest performers and actors and comics and you, you name it, it was on stage. The uh, one thing he really did like um, when the opening bars were played uh, and the magical bars, uh, somebody was overheard whispering to a neighbour saying, Cape Rianga. Uh, and he took that as a really uh, positive sign that, uh, uh, that all was well. The Aotearoa Overture is probably New Zealand's most famous orchestral piece. It sits in the UNESCO Memory of the World, which preserves items of international significance. Although Lilburn wrote it in London, listening to it, you can hear the mountains rising out of the Pacific Ocean, the solitude of the high country plains and the bird calls straight from the New Zealand bush. But the really interesting thing about Aotearoa is that uh, Lilburn hadn't named it Aotearoa Overture. It was the name was suggested by Warwick Braithwaite because he felt it would uh, give the overture more of a chance to have a longer life and would be more appropriate for being performed at the start of a centenary matinee. So, so much for Lilburn deliberately writing a, a song that evoked the, the long, land of the long white cloud. But he was obviously thinking about home as he was studying and writing in London. Oh, very definitely. He was wanting to uh, try to cultivate a sound that was appropriate to New Zealand um, because at that time he was uh, uh, on the tail end of uh, the global movement um, that had started really in the um, mid-19th century of composers um, utilising their folk music and trying to get a nationalistic sound or a national sound for their music. To Lilburn's mind, he was trying to capture the essence of the New Zealand environment and music. He wasn't trying to wave a flag with a, a music that um, the soldiers could march to or the civilians could get up and uh, he wasn't trying to glorify New Zealand as a political entity in his music.
On June the 1st, 1940, Douglas Lilburn boarded a ship bound for home. Three months later, as Lilburn's ship docked safely in Wellington, London would be systematically bombed by the Luftwaffe during the Blitz. In the few months he spent at sea, Lilburn had scooped first, second and the Coral Prizes in another competition for the centenary of the Treaty of Waitangi. Douglas was met at the port with newspaper reporters and photographers and his winning pieces Drysdale Overture, Festival Overture and Prodigal Country were played by the National Centennial Orchestra and recorded and broadcast on the YA stations that November. there was a war going on, and more practical duties than composition called. Lilburn had been summoned home to work on his sister's farm in Taihape, where he was in charge of about 800 ewes and had to milk the cows, mend the fences and chop the wood. His sister's husband had enlisted and gone off to war. This is Douglas's biographer, Philip Norman, again. So basically, Douglas was the man of the household and uh, had to do all the, um, the manly chores around there, which, well, I guess he'd grown up knowing how to um, herd sheep, if that's the right way to say it, or uh, one of the jobs he really hated was uh, uh, killing um, a sheep for the dog tucker. Uh, but he really enjoyed the outdoor life, and uh, there is a reminiscence by him singing at the top of his voice round the hills, It was a a happy place for him, uh, or at least the space it generated. So he remembered that time with fondness, but uh, he wasn't a farmer. He might have loved the landscape, but when an opportunity in music came up six months later, he jumped at it. Douglas was determined to make a career in music work, even during wartime. Well, you would think that... um it, it would be considered totally unessential and uh, superfluous, but in fact, uh, more opportunities for musicians arose during wartime than not, um, because music has a wonderful uh, power of bringing people together, and uh, music especially that speaks of a particular country in a time of adversity has a very great uh, effect on a country's morale. The National Broadcasting Service still had a small string orchestra, and in 1941 they were trialling conductors. Despite having no experience with a baton, Lilburn got the nod. But it only lasted a few months. He went south from Wellington down to Christchurch. He'd lived there when he was studying journalism and music at university before he went to London, and he moved back into the same room he'd first lived in, on Cambridge Terrace along the Avon River. Uh, There was an extraordinary set of artists from all genres uh, living here at the time. There Lilburn connected with artists such as Rita Angus, Leo Bensimon and Evelyn Page, her husband Fred, who would soon be running the music department at Victoria University, theatre director Niall Marsh with her modern renditions of Shakespeare and poets Dennis Glover and Alan Curnow. So there was a sort of 
golden mile, if you like, of artists all living along there and uh, painting each other because they couldn't afford to hire professional models and uh, reading each other poems and playing each other contemporary music. So it was a really very exciting time. All of them were on a quest to express themselves as New Zealanders which might seem obvious to us now, but in the 1940s, many Pākehā were still referring to Britain as home, and this new generation of artists was trying to break away from that. Lilburn was insistent that in music, New Zealand should create its own distinct traditions, which of course completely disregards the fact that Aotearoa already had traditions that stretch back over a thousand years of Māori culture. But in a similar way to the way indigenous musicians composed, Lilburn was inspired by the environment, the birds, the sea, the land. He often went on tramping trips, both planned and unplanned. If he couldn't sleep, he would get out and walk, and there's one occasion at least he walked right round the um, basin of Littleton Harbour, almost uh, overnight I think it was, and that's a massive walk. <laughs> uh, so yes, yes, he was a very long walker, and that stayed with him right through his life, really. He was uh, often seen walking around Wellington, even on in the most inclement weather, right through to his 80s. So yes, yes, he loved the outdoors. He knew that a lot of composers used to take notebooks with them and um, think of ideas and jot them down, and he, he tried that on a few of occasions and jotted the ideas down. But invariably, when he got back home, he found that it was absolute rubbish. Strangely, his musical impressions of the New Zealand environment were more second-hand ones in that he found the inspiration in the artwork of his peers that had painted New Zealand landscapes or the poets that had written uh, poems about the New Zealand landscape. And that seemed more than the direct experience to be what stimulated uh, a lot of these early works through the 1940s. There hadn't really been a New Zealand classical composer before, except for Alfred Hill, a colonial chap who was born in Australia but grew up here and became famous for his Māori-inspired music. It was almost unheard of to be a freelance composer, but the artists and poets they felt like Lilburn completed their creative and liberal group. Lilburn formed very close and lasting friendships in this time. One in particular was with the artist, pacifist, feminist and divorcee, Rita Angus, who was seven years older than he was. She'd later write a letter. Actually, there are around 400 letters from Rita to Douglas, all of which he kept. There's one that says, You told me you've been writing better music since you knew me. I have been painting better paintings since I knew you. They became extraordinarily good friends. Uh, um, they became uh, lovers uh, very briefly at one point when Lilburn was uncertain of his sexuality and um, was entertaining women friends. She became pregnant uh, to him but uh, lost the child uh, shortly afterwards and there's very poignant uh, um, correspondence about that from Rita Angus to Lilburn. Rita had been excited by the prospect of a baby and pleased that it was Douglas's. After the miscarriage, she threw herself into painting, becoming even more solitary and focused on her work. Rita was convinced that the 
child, uh, the spirit of the child was embodied in Lobin's um, 1942 Allegro for Strings, which was written about the time that Rita found out that uh, she was pregnant. He sort of deflected any talk of that. In fact, he never mentioned any of his um, relationships with any one right through his writings, really, um, you know, gathering uh, information from other people. It was obviously uh, in the 1940s where he finally realised that really he was homosexual rather than heterosexual. Lilburn by this time had met another painter, Douglas McDiamond, and the letters between them show a passionate relationship developing too. Rita... Um, I think she was really in love with Douglas, uh, and he was really fond of Rita. Um, they rubbed each other up the wrong way all the time, so there were sort of tempestuous uh, uh, scenes. And um, What would they fight about? One of the um, things that really annoyed Rita was um, Douglas deciding to go and teach at the University of Wellington, Victoria University College, as it was back then. Uh, and she felt that all his um, creativity would be sucked out of him by the institution there and uh, wrote him a very angry letter saying that, you know, you've got to make sacrifices if you really want to be seriously creating. She was right, in a way. Lilburn's Christchurch period was prolific. He wrote around four dozen pieces in those years. His teaching of the 1950s would slow him down a lot. But her anger says more about her own ethics. She hated selling her paintings. Fred Page was a little older than Lilburn, but he'd studied both at Canterbury and the Royal College of Music in London and was a great fan of Lilburn's music. When Victoria University started their School of Music in 1945, Fred was employed to run it, and it wasn't long before he enlisted Lilburn's expertise as a lecturer. Lilburn began to share his time between Christchurch and Wellington, which lasted a couple of years, but it was the beginning of an exodus from that fertile Canterbury art scene. While the world counted their losses from the war, many of the refugees here were enlivening the music scene. But it wasn't made easy for them. Back in Wellington, Richard Fuchs, the man who wrote music like Mahler, who Vaughan Williams had vouched for, was playing chamber music with Fred Page, as well as some other fellow refugees. But his own music was never played in New Zealand in his lifetime. Either it was too German or too sentimental in a world that was trying to create something completely new. I think at that time, one of I and I find it about New Zealand in general, politically and all sorts of ways. Danny Mulheron, who's an actor and filmmaker. Art movements and political movements and things sweep through us and like clean everything out and sort of so throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can't both exist at the same time. And by the time the war ended and his music was seen as old-fashioned or, you know, everything was modern, abstract expressionism, the modernists, the atonalists, all that was the new thing. Anything else was not, you know, considered worthy by the some musical people. Fuchs implored the newly formed Wellington Chamber Music Society to consider programming his work. 
But despite the fact that another refugee, Fred Tunofsky, had helped set it up, they showed no interest. His daughter Ava put it succinctly when she wrote, They want a New Zealand composer, not a Jew from Germany. And my father wore his heart and boots out going to local musicians only to be put off. By 1945, Fuchs had given up writing music at all and was working for the Ministry of Housing along with several other architects, including Schwarzkopf, who'd built 22 Ascot Terrace, and the famous modernist Plischke. Fuchs was naturalised, meaning he became a New Zealand citizen about 1946. Meanwhile, Paul Schramm had been turned down. The reason that was given for declining that naturalisation application was that he had not invested enough in war bonds uh, and that that cast question on his loyalty to New Zealand and they also doubted whether he actually wanted to remain in New Zealand anyway. Paul Schramm left the country after being denied a New Zealand passport for a tour of Australia and he never came back. His wife Deanie and their son became New Zealand citizens, and Deanie would go on in the 1960s to teach at Victoria University School of Music, alongside Lilburn. Immigrants have enriched New Zealand over the years. Historian Anne Beaglehole. Some strata of New Zealand society were very um, excited to meet people who'd come from Europe with their different ideas. They embraced the idea of difference. They embraced the idea of different food from what they'd grown up with, you know, and and that's I think that's still happening now among the people who who are keen to welcome refugees and, and immigrants. And also I in in the nineteen eighties I sort of had the view that chamber, the refugees came and they set up chamber music as though they again the cultural desert and they came and waved a wand and there it was. But I think they had a lot of help with from local New Zealanders, they, in partnership with key New Zealanders, they were able to set up chamber music. And then the refugees were, have always been a, a great audience for chamber music to this day if you go to chamber music concerts. In March 1947, the government's long-held plans for a national orchestra finally came to fruition. The orchestra contained a handful of World War II refugees, including cellists Mari van der Waart and Greta Ostova, violist Otto Hubscher and violinist Erika Schorz. Nick Bollinger's grandfather, John Dronker, led the double bass section. The programme, ironically considering the anti-German sentiment of post-World War II, contains Strauss and Brahms and one of Hitler's favourites, Wagner, alongside English composer Butterworth, the Bohemian Dvorak and Romanian Inescu. The National Orchestra of the New Zealand Broadcasting Service has given its first concert. The Prime Minister was present. Cabinet Ministers were present. All the nobility and gentry and intelligentsia were present, or at least a good proportion of them. It was reported to me that in the interval one of them had said, in annunciatory tones, this is the birth of a nation. The printed program was large and lavish. The audience was tremendously enthusiastic. The walls of the Wellington Town Hall visibly trembled. Heaven knows how, at the end of all that impassioned activity, Mr. Anderson Tyra still kept his tie straight. 
Ricard Fuchs was in the audience, outraged, not at the quality of the playing, but that some of the audience members had brought their knitting along. Just six months later, his ashes would be scattered over the Rimutaka Ranges after a short, fatal illness. Do you think, had he lived a little bit longer, that he would have been accepted in New Zealand, his music? Oh, yeah, but, you know, how long is long? Rickard's world had been obliterated not only by the Nazis, but by the change in fashion. The fascists did one, fashion did another. But it was never obliterated, it never has been. It just was not played. Meanwhile, as well as teaching, Lilburn had also been writing some scores for the film unit. One of them was another tourism New Zealand film aimed at the British market, filmed by famous photographer Brian Brake. Lilburn's part-time position teaching became full-time in 1949, and he finally committed to Wellington. Most of the great instrumentalists in Christchurch had been recruited for the National Orchestra, and the organisation was playing Lilburn's pieces. Lilburn had found a place by the sea in windswept Paikakariki. Yes, yes, that was um, where he first went there. Philip Norman again. The only time of his life he drove a car. He had a Morris Minor um, that he drove backs and forwards, but soon found out that it was he just didn't enjoy uh, so much time on the road there. At the same time, Lilburn was making new friends and reconnecting with old ones. There were new friendships being formed with some of the new arrivals too. Yes, he was very swept along with the very cultured view on life that a lot of these Europeans brought with them. So he, he was naturally drawn to them from that point of view. And he certainly became good friends with people like Mario Fleischel, uh, Hilda Fleischel. These two had arrived in 1936. Hilda was a Viennese doctor and Mario, a Polish psychoanalyst who'd studied with Freud. The architect Plischke was a good friend too. It was him who advised Lilburn not to apply for a more permanent job writing for the film unit, saying that the university position would allow him more artistic freedom. One of Lilburn's commissions around this time was for a play directed by Maria Dronka. Uh, she was almost immediately drawn to the poets and the musicians and the artists. Nick Bollinger. So... When she put on a production of, it was an Ibsen play, Colin McCann designed the set and she collaborated with Douglas Lilburn on these settings of poetry to music she read. And, and the first collaboration there, I think, was a poem by Rilke. Outside a storm gallops across the sky, tearing fragments of black and of white out of the night. Like a long lightning flash, the moonlight passes and the resting flag has restive shadows. Is there a window opener? Is the storm in the castle? Who rattles the doors? Who walks through the room? Whoever it be, let him be. He will not find his way into the tower where two shall sleep as deep as behind a hundred doors. 
and they share it like sharing one mother for one day. I wish I'd asked her more about it. Um, I certainly knew that they'd worked together, partly because, and I mean, this is just the sort of degrees of separation in a place the size of Wellington. When I was young, you know, up to the age of six or seven, we lived in Sydney Street West, which connected to Ascot Street, which is where Lilburn lived. He literally lived, you know, a few doors around the corner from us. And he was one of the people that my parents would stop and talk to in the street, you know, so I knew him by sight. And from that age, I must have known he's worked with your grandmother. He's a composer and they've done these things together. So that was what I knew. She was a quite a sort of imposing character. She would take the whole family to opening nights at Downstage. My brother and sister and I would always kind of try and sort of shrink into the shadows because she was she would greet everyone in this you know very kind of regal manner you know with her strong European accent and double you know, cases all of that you couldn't I mean yes yeah, she was a huge larger than life presence. A day full of baggage and curses, colours and laughter that drowned the whole country. Boisterous boys come running, roaring and falling. Winches come winking with purple hats in their flowing hair. Soldiers come eye on dark as the wandering night, seizing the women with lust and tearing their clothes, pressing them hard against the edge of the drums, and the drums leap to life, awakened by violent resistance of passionate hands. And as in a dream they rattle and roll. At night, he shone strange lanterns, wine glistening in helmets of iron. Wine or blood? Who knows the difference? In 1951, the modernist house at 22 Ascot Terrace, the Magpie House, would be built by Austrian refugee Friedrich Schwarzkopf. He'd been lucky to escape from Austria after being put in a concentration camp between 1939 and 1940. He managed somehow or another to get a concession from the Nazis to leave Austria in 1940 uh, with his wife Madeline, uh, Jewish as well. This is Chris Cochran, the conservation architect we heard from in the beginning of this episode. I came to New Zealand where he started off, as so many of them did, working in a totally menial role in a stocking factory he was interviewed by the Aliens Authority and was recognised as somebody with a skill who, you know, was was being wasted. I think he went into the housing division of the Ministry of Works and he works there for the government, uh, I think, until his retirement at age 65. Mm. And on the side, it seems that he designed two houses, um, one for Richard Collins and his family and one for himself and his wife. Richard Collins and his family were the original occupants of the Magpie House. And much like the house's architect, they would face political persecution and suspicion. And it would largely be the fault of the man who wrote this song. That's in episode two of the Magpie House, The Vegetable Club. 
podcast was produced and presented for Sound Centre for New Zealand Music Toitiara Puru by me Kirsten Johnstone. Research and interviews were by Jane Tolleton. Our sound engineer is Phil Brownley. Our script advisor is Melody Thomas of Popsock Media. Production advice was from Roger Smith, Nina Lesperance, Jonathan Engel, Carlo Magatich and Amy Somerville. Our executive producers are Diana Marsh, Eva Radich and Leone Venter. Thanks to the following for supplying audio and music for this episode. Nga Taonga Sound and Vision, the APO and RNZ Concert, Ricard Fuchs Archive Trust, The Kugels, Tom McGrath, Michael Houston, Rattle Records, Martin Risley and Donald Morris from Rattle Records, Margaret Nielsen from Ode Records, Sunrise Music Trust and the Lilburn Trust. And thank you for listening. For more about this podcast and other Sounds podcasts and information about the music of Aotearoa New Zealand, go to the Sounds website, sounds.org.nz. That's S-O-U-N-Z. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Toi te Sounds.